You couldn't drive on the freeway last week without passing at least one car that had been pulled over by the cops. And that can only mean one thing. The year's almost over. This is the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, sending you our most sincere hopes that you had a restful, contemplative, and safe holiday season this December. And if you didn't, well, we hope you at least got a story out of it. That's the magic trick for writers. Even when we lose, we win. I was cleaning up around the office when I came across the beauty from the vault we're going to share with you tonight. I've always wanted us to have a podcast, and after our first December show back in 2009, I actually took a crack at it. The only problem was I had no idea what to do with it after I made it, which is the story of my life, and then it just kind of sat on the shelf for the last 14 years. But today's the day. So without further commentary, it's my pleasure to share the nostalgic gem of our very first Home for the Holidays. Hello, and happy December festivities from So Say We All Radio. If your season is merry, which we hope it is, we hope to make it merrier still. Or if this has been a winner that makes you understand why so many people kill themselves this time of year, then we hope to commiserate with you. So, without further ado, first up, because as people so often come last this time of year, I give you Sam Carr with his interpretation of the hipster's Hanukkah. So the real story of Hanukkah is actually military victory and looking at people like our lovely hosts and me, you really can't believe that about Jews. So <laughs> we've decided to rewrite Hanukkah as hipster Hanukkah. To know the story of Hanukkah, you need to know the story of Jews. Started as a free-thinking, monotheistic collective by a part-time bartender and bassist named Abraham. They proceeded to get conquered by several empires, which they themselves called entropy-based performance art. <laughs> One day, a couple thousand years ago, citing creative differences with the rest of the world, Alexander the Great of Macedonia decided to take over the world. The Jews were, at the time, being run by the Persian Empire, which Alexander smashed pretty quickly, and he got to the gates of Jerusalem. Naturally, Jewish defenders were very nervous. Alexander got to the front of the army and he yelled to the walls of Jerusalem, Hey! Have you guys heard the new Animal Collective album? <laughs> the Jews breathed the collective sigh of relief. This guy got it. So the Jews decided to send out their high priest to talk to Alexander. The two of them stared at each other for 20 minutes in silence. The consummate warrior Alexander assumed it was a test of wills. However, the high priest had just gotten a new vaporizer and was currently too high to say a single sentence. <laughs> Finally, Alexander lit a cigarette, slapped the high priest in the back and said, Kid, you're all right. The two became best of friends and their adventures were eventually chronicled by the hit TV show Knight Rider. <laughs> Alexander, Alexander entered the city and prayed at all the shrines and let the Jews worship whoever they wanted. For such kind treatment, and because they were desperate to be cool with the LGBT community, <laughs> the Jews welcomed the Macedonians, Macedonians and honored Alexander. Things looked good for the Jewish people. New Greek fusion cafes were opening all over town, and many an experimental art, lyre, and pipe band was started. After the death of Alexander, however, things got a little less great. A wicked king named Antiochus took command. And he was, in the words of local record store owners, a bougie fuck. <laughs> uh, 
At first the tension was low, a few sneers and calls of, oh, you listen to that band. The breaking point, however, came when Antiochus Priest took a pig and brought it into the great temple slash vegan restaurant slash collective garden, which was currently being run by a man named Mattathias and his living girlfriend, Nina. Nina saw the priest and said, excuse me, excuse me, what are you doing? The priest started yelling, I'm going to sacrifice this pig to Zeus, that Zeus is going to bring me a sick as fuck Ed Hardy shirt with a dragon fucking a tiger on the back. <laughs> Nina said, I'm sorry, but according to Andrea Dworkin, but before she can enlighten the priest with the latest feminist political theory, Mattathias stormed up, spear in hand, screaming, hey, I'm trying to watch Lost in Translation here, what the hell is going on? <laughs> The priest started to laugh. Bro, seriously? Mattathias screamed, Don't call me bro! And drove a spear straight through the priest. <laughs> Nina hid the body away and donated the pig to a local no-kill animal shelter. <laughs> Mattathias summoned his five sons, Jokanon, Simeon, Eleazar, Jonathan, and Judah, who were also members of what is still considered the best Zoroastrian core band in the Fertile Crescent. <laughs> Together, they scoured the dive bars, lesbian bookstores, and cafes for like-minded souls to form an army. They dubbed themselves the Maccabees, an obscure reference to a Swedish art film they had all seen. <laughs> Putting on their tightest trousers, their band tunics, and heavy-gauge earrings glittering in the sun, the Maccabee army performed what is considered the first meta-ambush in history, destroying the forces of Antiochus by claiming the entire army had been organized ironically. <laughs> Defeated, the Greeks sacked the city, and as the last cries of, not cool, bro, drifted away on the wind, the Jews went to see what happened to their beloved temple, vegan restaurant slash community garden. The place was smashed. The Frida Kahlo prints defaced. Their hothouse zucchinis devoured. And worst of all, the temple menorah had lost all of their organic, locally produced oil. <laughs> Mattathias turned to his son Judah, who for some reason everyone called Jud Jud. <laughs> My son, you are without a doubt the greatest dumpster diver in the land. See what oil you can find for the menorah. Judd Judd looked solemn. Even oil derived from animal products? No, my son, for then Nina would throw a shit fit, and that would be lame. <laughs> Judd Judd finally returned with one day's worth of oil, but through some miracle, or perhaps the side effect of that temple vaporizer, the people beheld that it burned for eight days. And since then, We've lit our candles for eight days in honor of our scrappy and oh-so-hip ancestors. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Next up, Liz Huerta has traveled from the deserts of Southern California all the way to the snow-covered European mountains to bring you a story of holiday culture clash in the Swiss Surprise. I'd been in Switzerland for a few months, staying with my Swiss boyfriend, Christian. I had met him while living in Mexico the previous year, had come to visit him and ended up staying. I loved Christian, despite the fact that he barely spoke English and I spoke no German, but I only tolerated Switzerland. I had a hard time with the cold and could only eat so much cheese. I missed Mexican food so much that I learned how to make flour tortillas from a recipe on the internet. My tortillas were kind of thick and never quite round, but all that mattered was that they tasted like a 2 a.m. burrito run. Christian bragged to his family that I was making authentic Mexican food for him. 
His mother, a very proper Swiss German, insisted I make them a real Mexican Christmas dinner, that I share traditions from my people, and that if she in turn would have something authentically Swiss for me, I imagined strudel or schnitzel with noodles, and I would make bean burritos. I had never had an authentic Mexican Christmas dinner as an abatole champorado. My mom was Puerto Rican, and my Mexican father didn't really cook. But the real issue was that I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness and was forbidden to take part of any Christmas celebrations. As a child, when my elementary school classmates made Santa Clauses with cotton ball beards and sang carols, I sat out in the back of the class doing extra homework, confident they were all going to die an agonizing death in the apocalypse, and I was going to live forever. Sometimes on Christmas Day, my family went to Disneyland with the other Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews and atheists. Since my Jehovah's Witness upbringing pretty much negated any semblance of Mexican holiday authenticity, I resorted to a fail-safe cross-cultural compromise. I brought a bottle of tequila. When Christian and I arrived at his mother's house on Christmas Day, I sat up in the kitchen and began to roll out oblong and slightly thick tortillas. Christian's mother made an excited announcement in German. Nay! Christian pleaded with his mother in German, and she shushed him. Their tone needed no translating. What is it, I asked. It's your Swiss surprise, she said. It's coming after dinner. I was intrigued, but had bean burritos to make. Dinner was interesting. My thick tortillas hemorrhaged beans and guacamole whenever we tried to roll them up all the way. But it didn't really matter, since the Swiss family insisted on eating them with forks and knives. I insisted everyone drink tequila. After dinner, we sat on black leather sofas in the white modern living room and were chatting when the doorbell rang. Your Christmas surprise is here! Christian's mother went to the door and a family of four walked in. A mother, father, and two teenage children who didn't look very happy. The mother, a short woman with a round, cheerful face and rosy cheeks, approached me. I am Brigitte, she said a little too eagerly, and I am your surprise. I smiled nervously. I had no idea what kind of surprise a middle-aged woman with the bowl haircut and surly children could provide. We gathered in the modern living room and poured out enough tequila shots to go around. I tried to ask Christian why Brigitte was my surprise when she cleared her throat and fixed her eyes on me. Everyone went silent. She opened her mouth and she let out what sounded like the mating howl of the Yeti. She was a yodeler. It was nothing like the sound of music. Yodeling developed in the Swiss Alps as a method of communication between different mountaintops. It was loud and long. After Brigitte finished, she looked at me expectantly, so I clapped. She lit up and said, oh, you like it? She drank her tequila down quickly. I picked up the bottle and poured her another. She yodeled another song. When she finished, 
I poured her another shot and another for myself. After a few songs, her eyes began to, began to redden and she began to punctuate the pauses with emotional declarations in German. She kept looking at her daughter and smiling sadly. I didn't understand a word she said, but whatever it was, her daughter was trying to meld herself into the body, into the sofa with mortification. After one of the songs, Brigitta began to cry. Her husband stood up, faced red, and excused himself to leave. His kids followed, but the, to the astonishment of everyone there, Brigitta insisted on staying. The rest of us were held hostage by my drunk Christmas gift. Her yodeling eventually gave way to sad, non-holiday songs that sounded like they should have been sung in bars by white-bearded men or sailors. We sat and listened with increasing awkwardness, attempting small talk and exchanging desperate looks. Christian's mom was beside herself and kept putting her head in her hands. Finally, to the relief of everyone in attendance, Brigida let out a final sob and sat down heavily on the couch. A couple of moments later, her head lolled back on the cushion and her body slumped slightly to one side. She passed out. The rest of us sat quietly for a few minutes. I volunteered to wash the dishes. The offer shook Christian's mother out of her embarrassed daze. She said, we didn't have to do dishes. It was late. We should just go home. She ushered us out into the cold Swiss evening, apologizing how my authentic Swiss surprise turned out. In the distance, the Alps stood stoic and yodelerless. I told her not to worry, that I loved it. I told her that at home, at our family parties, we also had the cultural equivalent of yodelers who got drunk and stayed too long. I promised her when she came to visit me in California, I would make sure to hire a mariachi band. Thank you. No holiday is complete without a curmudgeon who is totally over it. And so say we all's resident, Mr. Grumpy Pants, David Tuffy, is going to fulfill that role for us here with his story, Should Have Gone Skiing with the Jews. Fuck Christmas. It's cliche, I know, but there you have it. I used to love Christmas time. That's what we called it growing up in my all-white suburb of Boston. Never the holidays. If the one Jewish family in town minded... They didn't speak up. I could never understand my mother's increasingly foul mood as December 25th approached. It was snowy. We got over a week off of school. The house was warm and smelled like fresh pine, and there were presents. What wasn't to like? I took pride that our traditions were more old-fashioned than the other families. The tree was always real. While others bought tacky garlands, we spent two weeks stirring popcorn and cranberries, threading the needles, constantly pricking our fat little kid fingers. I always ate more than I got on the string, and then finished it off by hanging candy canes and tinsel strands that would make the tree sparkle, and that clung to winter clothing and tracked about the house with a static ferocity that drove my mother insane. We even made our own gingerbread house from scratch. Words cannot adequately describe my excitement. Each 
Christmas morning after I'd woken my parents at 6 a.m. when I was the first one to race down the stairs to see the enormous pile of presents under the tree. Even after I knew there was no such thing as Santa Claus, it still seemed like magic. Other friends bragged about stealing about the house to find their hidden presents before Christmas. I could never understand why they'd want to spoil the surprise. For me, everything about the season, the lights around town, the time off of school, the smell of pine needles and baked goods, the songs on the radio, even the retail ads on TV and in the paper, all were evocative of this one perfect moment to which they led. And then it all went to shit. It wasn't just that my mother, exhausted by years of staying up late on Christmas Eve to cook, clean, and decorate, after weeks of the most grueling forms of shopping, decided that enough was enough. She would do the cooking and put on her game face Christmas Day to host our rambling family, but she'd be damned if she was going to pretend to like it anymore. My sister and I were glad to pick up the slack on popcorn and cranberry duty, on the decorating, and even on some of the gift buying. I remember hiding out in our basement playroom on Christmas Eve, wrapping presents while my mother baked furiously in the kitchen above. The oven would rage. There would be banging of pots and pans, followed by long silences while my mother shifted flour and measured out ingredients, punctuated occasionally with shit when she lost count of how many teaspoons or cups of this or that she'd added to the mix. In addition to the traditional Christmas ham and pot roast, there would be three pies, raspberry apricot bars, eggplant parmesan, baked rolls, veggie lasagna, potatoes with gravy, grilled vegetables, salads, cookies, and cakes. Don't even get me started on the hors d'oeuvres. Christmas spirit or no, Mom never half-assed a party, certainly not when the relatives were coming over. No, it wasn't my mom's growing reluctance over the holiday, and it wasn't that special dis disappointment on realizing one Christmas in the ninth grade that there were no longer any toys under the tree for me. A new sweater was nice, but it's not like you could play with it all morning while waiting for your relatives to arrive. Even when my sister left for college and I became responsible for 100% of the Christmas spirit in the house, I still consider it the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe it was freshman year in college. Finals went up to the 23rd of December. New York City had ice storms and the sidewalks froze into solid masses of danger. I spent my reading period eating from library vending machines until 3 in the morning then waking early for track practice before heading back to the books. With only a day and a half left to shop, I schlepped home to Boston on a Greyhound bus with a broken heater while the dirty old man sitting next to me kept trying to ease his hand over to my seat and in between my thighs, <laughs> only to arrive and have my high school sweetheart break up with me. Maybe it was sophomore year, another ice storm, brutally cold. No longer a fan of the bus, I got stuck on a five-hour train ride home with no available seats. I sat shivering in the vestibule between cars while the metal junctures that held them together twisted uncomfortably beneath me. I didn't get to my shopping until December 26th. At least I caught the after Christmas sales. No one bothered just drink popcorn for the tree. My junior year, I came home earlier, still drained from finals, and caught the chicken pox from my little brother. If you know anything about getting chicken pox as an adult, you'll understand how this would put the final nail in the Christmas coffin. I had pock marks all over my face and body, my arms and legs, on my eyelids, in my ears. I even had them inside my throat. It was like swallowing broken glass each time I drank water. Worse when I threw up, which I did violently and often. I had a high-grade fever and stayed in bed for five days straight, near delirium. I looked like chupacabra. I'd never been so sick in my life. They didn't give me any of the good drugs. And then that was it. 
It took three months for the scars in my face to fade, and with them went my Christmas spirit. Sometimes I catch a glimmer of it when I hear a carol on the radio, or see the lights strung up on the overpasses of the 805. Sometimes even when I catch a Black Friday ad in a circular, in all its red, green, and white glory. As with all loss, growing up, death, a really bad breakup, you heal, but never completely, and you can never again quite conjure the feeling of when you were in it. I don't bother going home for the holidays anymore. Instead, my family comes to me, and we drive north and go skiing with the Jews. Our last story of this show comes from the mouth of an angel, or at least she's often been mistaken for one, around 2 a.m. inside her grandmother's bar. Angela Davignon brings us home with the patron saint of Rosie O'Grady's. The returning cast of the Davignon family Christmas table is composed of compelling, albeit insane, characters. When the table is set in my mother's polished home, our names are written in her perfect calligraphic handwriting and placed delicately on the plates. Though, to accurately describe my family, one must follow the name tags. At the head of the table sits my mother, born and raised in a strict Baptist family who married my father, placed at the opposite end of the table. It is he who's provided a string of relatives crowding around on holidays and birthdays, swearing and speaking over each other. To my brother Alex and I, the scenes enacted at these gatherings are pure entertainment. Even in years when my mother placed us as far apart from each other as possible, we'd compensate with exaggerated looks, loud remarks, and long, ridiculous reaches over the table. Sadie, my elderly great-grandmother, whose obsession with Native American folklore has led her down a mystical path in her old age, is the oldest of us all. She once was a tavern woman who housed hobos and fed cookies to train jumpers. Maybe this is why she rambles nonsensical wisdom off to us at the table, none of us having any idea what she's saying. When I was 16, she told me I had a bad Navajo spirit on me, and she needed to take me to Arizona to stand in her medicine wheel in her cactus-laden backyard. Needless to say, I was terrified. She usually sits across from Michael, my adopted grandfather, whom we never call Grandpa, just Michael. Michael is flagrantly Jewish and never lets us forget it. His humor is dry, he's good-natured but grouchy, and wears black, thick-rimmed Woody Allen-style glasses. He also has a penchant for wearing gold rings and chains. Then there's Barbara, my grandmama. It's understood that Barbara's personality stopped aging at 22. She's a connoisseur of good margaritas, dances alone when Michael won't get off the couch, and decorates her house with Barbara Streisand records simply because her name is on them. It's my grandmama's habit to lose her glass of wine at every function without fail and is a self-confirmed cheap date. She, she's usually slashed by wine glass number two, no matter how many times she's misplaced it. She has been seated at the end of the table, furthest away from my mother. Maybe it's for noise control, but that has no matter. Grandmama's voice can reach the far distant corners of the house. Somehow, we've made it through this particular meal contented with small talk, but I'm waiting for the opening act that will start the show. Just when I think this dinner will go the way pleasant, normal dinners go, it begins. What did I forget? My wine? Oh, I switch to Grandmama, who's all but holding her glass in her hand. Her head snaps back and forth, searching wildly for the ambiguous missing object. Suddenly it dawns on her. It's the gravy! No one passed me the gravy! I made the gravy! I slaved for the gravy and no one thought to pass it to me! What is this? I had a whole plate of mashed potatoes without gravy? She looks around the table for the perpetrator with narrowed eyes. 
All of us are silent, in awe of the show, I suppose, and some kind soul passes the saucer down. Grandmama then deliberately takes a spoonful and dumps it on her empty plate. There, she says triumphantly, then complains how she has a plate of gravy with no potatoes. When she's got potatoes, she begins to rave even further. Oh my god, this gravy is delicious. Who made this gravy? Grandmama laughs at herself and washes it down with a gulp of wine. How my grandmama manages to be the life of the party at any function she shows up at is the mystery and wonder of her being. Grandmama can light up a room and feed entire armies of men, so it makes perfect sense that she runs a pub. And not just any pub, an Irish pub. And we're not even Irish. We're not even French, for that matter. We're Anglo-Saxon mutts, as it were, with a heritage that stops after Sadie. <clears throat> we don't really know where we're from, so we hang out at the bar like everyone else without an origin. Not unlike Grandma Sadie in the days of yore, her daughter Grandmama is the mother of Rosie O'Grady's, and it's here that she hones those lost souls who no longer have trains to jump, but are rather dodging sidewalk. There's nothing romantic about Rosie's other than Barbara. It's here that if Grandmama has lost her wine glass, she can just grab someone else's without consequence. I mean, she runs the place, the lady does what she wants, and if the drink has run dry, then Michael as head bartender is there to fill it right back up. Michael's son Jason bartends most nights and has a Chicago accent with vowels so short and wide they resemble gunshots. It's his Midwestern, no-nonsense attitude that keeps the bar in check. When I tell people my grandmama owns Rosie's, I've heard on more than one occasion, oh god, the bartenders there are assholes. But what they don't know is that three out of five of those assholes are related to me. I relish the expressions on people's faces when I tell them this. No free beer for you, I say and turn on my heels. The latest addition to the townie bar that is Rosie O'Grady's is my baby brother. On the day he joined the ranks, my mother wept hysterically. She rarely steps foot in Rosie's. It's a world she liked to do without. For me, going there is a little like going home, but without all the country comfort stylings and shabby chic furniture. The bar is our dinner table, and the regulars my siblings. Rosie's is home to anyone who wanders in and stays long enough to get to know us. And when people tip well, I lean over and thank them for making my Christmas presents possible. To celebrate my homecoming, anytime I show up at Rosie's, I'm greeted with shots, shot after shot. Family shots, brother-sister shots, we just got this new whiskey shots. So when I show up and step behind the bar to receive my drink like a Catholic takes communion, attention is immediately drawn. People stare and wonder why I get to go back there. I don't look like a Rosie's regular. Bob, who all but lives there, is a somewhat toothless guy with a long gray beard that he sometimes lets me braid. He'll point to me and tell people, that's Barbara's granddaughter, and they immediately smile. Everyone knows Barbara, and to know her is to love her. Barbara's legacy is the bar and the people she's adopted as family. Transients and bar folk all know her by name. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate together, and Christmas time is no different. The garland goes up, the hanging plastic shamrocks are spray painted with frost, and karaoke night gives way to sad bastard Christmas sing-alongs. It's cozy this way, with the brick and the brass, our warm little bar home holding us all together. These are my people, all mutts like me, crowding at the bar and helping with the dishes. Going home to my mother's is a ceremony, a wiping of the feet at the door, a checking of the morals and manners once you step inside. But Rosie's is where I am myself, an ambassador of drunks and training, a sister to the slashed and lost. In my mother's house, we may celebrate Jesus, the Son of God, but at my other home, Rosie O'Grady's, we celebrate Barbara, the patron saint of the pub, and all her children who come in from the cold.
Thank you so much for experiencing that archaeological wonder with us. Once again, your storytellers were Sam Carr, Elizabeth Huerta, David Tuffy, and Angela Davignon. Happy holidays from all of us at So Say We All. I would be terribly remiss if I didn't remind you that joining our Patreon as a supporting member does wonders for us in keeping our programming alive and well in the new year. It's entirely tax deductible and allows us to reward you with a host of benefits. So just hop over to So Say We All online slash support. And we'd like to take a moment to celebrate our current members at the 25 and above dollar level who are David Tuffy, Hunter Gatewood, Adit Zelkind, Jay Vu, Randallin Driver, Eileen Zimmerman, Sharon Hudnell, my mom, Elizabeth Morrow, Sandy Morgan, Fran Chadwick, Janelle Drumright, Nico Padamatis, Ona Russell, Patrick Stewart, Elizabeth Thomas, Joyce Wisdom, Jamie Williams, and Taylor Funderburk. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you have not already, and if you would, please do leave us a rating and a review. Magically, more people will find us that way. Thanks so much for listening, and maybe the next story we hear will be yours.